Okay, so for those of you who are watching this stream, we were cut off in the last stream for whatever reason, and uh, that's all right. We're going to pick up where we left off and just go straight to a few of the questions that had been coming in. We'll, we'll take about 15 minutes and toss around it, as many questions as we can get through, um, and then go to closing statements, and that'll be it for this episode, and then uh, we'll go from there. But I, I think this has been a really good conversation to have. Um, something that has been challenging on both sides for a lot of different reasons. And, and probably the last 30 minutes, Jeff has been holding his own because I think there's there's been a, there's it been a focus on First John 5:7 and kind of where the direction goes um, where when there's not a manuscript support for a, a particular variant. And uh, where is God at in that uh, Where is God at in the conversation of the whole thing? I think at the end of the day, the question that we're trying to ask. The, the question that we're trying to get an answer to is uh, what is God doing when it comes to the text of the scripture? Um, and why do we have these variants? How do we determine what is the actual scripture? And, and uh, this, to me, has been a really good conversation. I've sat back and just listened to a lot of it. Um, I actually hold the TR position like, like Jeff does, but I'm not a confessional text advocate. Um, so I don't look at it from a confessional perspective. For me, when we're looking at, at passages like 1 John 5, 7, I'm I, my own perspective, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll just throw it out there, and I don't think we need to talk about First John 5, 7 anymore tonight, but um, I, I wonder what, where the, where the, uh, the early um, translations uh, are at in the conversation. I wonder where the, the quotations from the church fathers down through the centuries are in the conversations, because they, it, it, to me, you can see the evidence of what God has providentially preserved um, and what people actually use, and even if it's not in the Greek manuscript support. so And that may be dangerous to some people to say, well, we're going to go in that direction to decide where the text is going today. Um, but for that particular variant, that's something that I think is something to consider. But anyways, let's go to some of the questions that we've got. Um, I lost all of the questions that came from the 11 different video streaming platforms that were coming in all at once on the last stream. So what I do have is the questions that came in from uh, the Watch Party and the NT Textual Criticism Facebook group. And uh, let's just read a couple of these, and we'll spend about 15 minutes to answer those the best we can, and then we'll go to closing statements. So, all right, so Wayne Sturry says, I'm enjoying this. Peter, what TR would you recommend? I like the TBS TR by Scrivener. But I realize that some readings, uh, some readings he footnotes may be better readings. A reading in his text may have only support for Erasmus, while the footnote has a better reading supported by both majority and CR texts. This is a question for me. Yes. Yeah, it was. Oh. He directed it. Yeah, towards I mean, you. I, 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 this is my copy of Scrivener right above me. That's not. I did not do that just for this show. You know, <laughs> uh, I use Scrivener all the time. I love it. Um, and in fact, you know, I just finished writing an article where I defended four TR, uh, sorry, not TR, you can call them TR, although they are in the TR, four Byzantine readings in the Gospel of Matthew where I think the critical texts are wrong. So, um, you know, to James's point, uh, I'm very happy to follow the Byzantine manuscripts, even against the early evidence, when I think the internal evidence is very strongly on their side. And in each of the four cases that I argue for my article, uh, that's exactly why I do. Um, so anyways, yeah, but to the question, Scrivener is great. If you find a reading in a footnote that you think is better, good, great. You know, if it is, I mean, 
keep keep working on your judgment and your text critical skills. Perfect. Okay, now we've got one more for you, Peter, and, and then I'll see if I can find one for Jeff and James as well. Uh, but this is from Steve Bauer. He asked this question about an hour and a half ago. Said he was gonna he's he's going to bed and wanted to get the question in. Anyways, hey, and uh, the question if you've gone to bed. <laughs> well, yeah, he said, well, I'm gonna get my popcorn and see if I can watch this video uh, okay. sometime later. But I'm gonna get my question in anyway. So, anyways, uh, Steve, if you get if you get a chance to watch this, we did get your question in. So, all right. So Peter, he says this: if, as Royce has shown, I might not be pronouncing that correctly, and somebody still for whatever reason. There you go. Anytime somebody um, types a new comment in, it jumps me all the way to the bottom. Okay. He says, if, Roy, uh, if as Royce has shown in the early papyri, the tendency was to omit, is there is there a consensus as to what time frame the tendency to add, through harmonization, for example, begin? Yeah, so the, ar the argument I just talked about the article is actually on that point about whether we should prefer the shorter reading or not, and I argue I don't think we should, in principle, prefer the shorter reading. I do think it's evident that scribes uh, do have a tendency to add things to manuscripts, but I don't think it's necessarily stronger than the tendency um, to omit things accidentally, for example. But I do think what you find is that over time, scribes are, if they're confronted with two texts and one is shorter and one is longer, I think their tendency very much would have been to preserve a longer reading and, and not risk. Frankly, it's the same impulse that, that I think Jeff has, and that is it's a it's a it's a desire not to lose scripture. There's a, a deep concern about that um, on the part of scribes, and so if they have to choose, they'll choose a longer reading if if they have to make a choice. Um, if we can identify a certain period in which that switches, I'm not sure. In my own research, um, I, I approached with a different method than James Royce did. So really, what James Royce found was that the early papyri, the substantial early papyri that he looked at, six of them, show a tendency to omit in what are called singular readings. And singular readings are readings found only in one manuscript, okay? And part of the big debate about his method is whether singular readings are really indicative of scribal habits as a whole. And my co-editor, <coughs> co Elijah Hickson, his dissertation tackles that problem head on. He does not think so. Uh, in my own research, I don't think so either. So I don't think uh, Royce's method is completely wrong by any means. But I also don't think it gives us a complete picture of what scribes did. So, James, you want to comment on that real quick, and then I've got a question for Jeff. By by Alan Farns and by Hernandez on Revelation, and they both point in the same direction. Right, but if you look at some others, they don't see, and that's part of the problem. So, the question is, even if even if all the studies using singular readings pointed in the same direction on this question, we're still only looking at singular readings, and we all know that scribes made more changes than just what's in the singular readings, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the question. Okay. All right, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. All right, that'll wrap oh, that. I was going to say, singular readings were just picked because it's easy to tell relative, compared, compared to other cases. It's not just because it's easy to tell, well, actually. Uh, I talk about this in my dissertation as well. It's, like, it's, it's not just because they're easy to tell. Royce is very clear. He thinks there are places where... There can be no, has, he borrows a phrase actually from Westcott and Hort, James, so I don't know if you'll like this or not, but the phrase that he borrows is um, where there can be mo no moral doubt, I think he says. or Certitude. It, yeah, moral certitude, maybe that's what it is. He gets that from Westcott and Hort, and he pulls it a bit out of context, because they're actually quite clear that they say there are plenty of readings where there can be no real doubt in a, in a trained scholar's mind as to which reading is the original and which is not, 
and they're not talking about singular readings there. In other words, they think the pool of manuscript, uh, excuse me, the pool of variants from which you should discern scribal habits. They think it's a much bigger pool than what James Royce uses. So it's the methodological point that does does matter. So if, if people want to know my results, I use the CVGM in, in the book of James, and I found there that scribes added about as often as they omitted. There was a slight propensity to add, but it wasn't very significant. So I'm afraid we just can't dive into that pool right right now yeah. on the stage. But, yeah, but it's, a, but it's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, okay, yeah. so this is for Jeff. He says, uh, John Jeffrey says, what impact does holding a confessional text have on the future of text criticism? And does the work of text criticism go on? If so, on what basis does the work of text criticism proceed? Well, I mean, the, the text criticism doesn't uh, proceed in order to reconstruct a, a new text um, for the church. Now, I think there's a place for historical study of uh, the, the artifacts uh, that are in existence. There's, there's a place for the historical study of manuscripts. Uh, there, there's a place for, you know, this giving insights into the history of Christianity and so forth. But I'm not looking to the academy to establish a, a text from which I'm going to preach or teach um, that I'm going to use as a basis for establishing proper doctrine or practice within the life of the church. And, uh, you know, how is it we've come to this point where we're, we're looking to the academy uh, to provide the text for the church to use? Um, so, and, and, you know, Peter was talking earlier about uh, the Tyndall House Greek New Testament putting the, I, I said, relegating the pericope adulteri to the footnotes, um, when will they attempt to print a vernacular translation that excludes the pericope adulteri? Um, I, I don't think that they will do that, uh, at least anytime soon, because I think they would realize there would be a backlash uh, of people in the pew uh, who would see that as scripture and it would be greatly offended if there was an attempt to remove that from the text of Scripture. Now, we may come to a point, like I said, I'm, uh, the, the, the New Living Translation is including, you know, the shorter ending of Mark uh, within the text. And again, I'm, I'm alarmed by that, um, just as I am by removing the Pericope Adulteri from the text proper. Uh, in the Tendo House Greek New Testament, but I'm not looking to I'm not looking to the academy to provide a text, and and the text isn't going to change every few years. There's not going to be another edition. I mean, I think it's uh, Peter get, gave the impression earlier that you know once all the the editorialist work editorial work is done, the, the, the Catholic epistles have been done and then you know other books will be done then that you know will be the end no there'll be there'll be another method that will come along uh should the lord tarry and there'll be another method beyond beyond that and i think it sets us up for ha never having a stable fixed text and i think the confessional text position gives us a text that's not going to change, it's not going not going to alter, and so it gives us epistemological certainty. 
All right, Peter, I want to ask you this to kind of piggyback off. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Jeff, did I cut you off there? No, I'm good. Okay. Peter, I want to ask you just to kind of piggyback off that. Are, are, are you concerned that you would be within uh, the, the scholarship realm of that conversation, and, and do you believe that God is using um, the academia to reconstruct the text to kind of recover what the original was? What, what, what's your take on that? Is God using yeah, I mean, you where you're at? I think there's an unfortunate um, conflation for for folks, some folks on the TR side, maybe a lot of them, I don't know. Um, I mean, Jeff said that you know this should be something the church does, not something the academy does. I I just I'd love to know how he demarcates that because the Tyndale folks are the church; they're certainly part of it. So maybe by the church he just means his church, or maybe he just means confessional folks, which is again not the whole church. Um, so I don't, you know, do I think God works through means? Of course he does. Does he work through the incredible tools that I have? Does he work through the great dictionaries of Greek and Hebrew that I use every day? I ho- sure hope so. You know, otherwise we're all in trouble. Um, does God work through means all the time? Does he work through human means all the time? Um, so why should we think that God is somehow above working through human textual critics to help deliver his word to his people. I just don't see a problem with that. And not only do I not see a problem with it, I think he's been doing that for all of church history, right? So he's, there, there have always been some, some people in the church whose calling it is to devote themselves to a life of study, and that study is not this negative thing that Jeff calls scholarship. Uh, it is a life devoted to the work of the Lord. I mean, when people ask why I bother to do this, it's because I, I love the Word of God and I love His people, and I want to help connect those two, right? Um, so, I just happen to be good at it. I mean, I'm, you know, in Jeff's view, I'm not good at it, I suppose. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I happen to think that I have a particular skill for this, so I'm going to do what I think God has gifted me to do the best I can to, in the service of the most that I can. So, of course, of course, the Lord works through uh, through through scholars, I'm I'm not against scholarship, and again, I said I think I think there's a place for historical study of extant manuscripts and so forth. But again, I, I believe when we when we, when we're making a declaration that John seven fifty three through eight eleven is not the word of God, but you're making a declaration that it is. That's my point. Is there's no safe ground here. There isn't like some safe ground where we don't have to make a decision about whether it is or is not the Word of God. And it's the same thing with the comma yoinium, right? Jeff has to make a decision about whether it is or is not, just like I do. In in 1 John 3, 1, where I think the longer reading is original, where, where John says, you know, Behold what manner of love the Father has shed unto us that we are children of God, and such that he would call us children of God, and such we are. Those words, and such we are, are not in Jeff's TR, and I think that's unfortunate because I think they are the word of God, right? But I wouldn't say that because his text doesn't have it and mine does, that therefore he's the one who has to make a harder decision or a worse decision than I have to, do you see? We all have to make a decision. You can't avoid it. So, that's good. Um, okay, so I've got one last question. I'm going to have all three of you. James, I think, wanted to say something. I'm oh, I'm sure. sorry, James. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Up. Please, comment. <laughs> Finally. Uh, Peter. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I think Jeff can probably uh, confirm this for me. He was at the conference back in 2014 where Tyler Wasserman and Maurice Robinson and some others were, were there and assembled to talk about uh, John 7, 
53 through 811, which which I fully accept. Uh, yep. Probably not. We, we probably would, would would not accept the different variants within that. Uh, sure. I, I would, but but that's another subject. But um, at that conference, uh, at the end, uh, Chris Chris Keith had to leave early, but the, but uh, David Allen Black was there, and he asked the participants, uh, "What do you think about this story about the adulterers? Do you think this should be preached in churches?" And Tommy Wasserman, along with every other participant who was still there, said, "Yes, it should be preached." And so I would ask Peter, um, Pete, um, Tommy Wasserman seems to think that the PA is not original and yet should be preached. Well, what let's do you be, do with that? Yeah, yeah. So let's be clear about that, right? Um, what he thinks is that it's not original to John's gospel, but neither is Mark's gospel. And he still thinks we should preach Mark just like you do, right? In other words, you don't think that we should preach Mark's gospel because it's part of John's original So text. is it basically a 28th book? Are you, you'd have to ask him that. I mean, that's not my well, What's your so you'd have to, yeah. Should we... Should I we, don't... Should because there are so many manuscripts that do not have the woman caught in adultery, well, I don't think it's original to John, and I don't think the church is... What's that? Well, no, I mean, I'll give you the... Here's the numbers. Only about 250. No, 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 no. I've got it. So it's 268 continuous text manuscripts and 677 lectionaries. But but of those continuous texts, how many are commentary manuscripts with basically the same edition that should be boiled down? Well, it doesn't matter to me. The point is... like 80, doesn't it? I mean, if we're going to weigh manuscripts, those need to be boiled down. Sure. No, weighing manuscripts is true. And if all you want to do is weigh manuscripts, I think the argument that the pericope adultery was left out accidentally is 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 you know not convincing at all uh and there's no reason I'm, for a scribe to admit it. well <laughs> you do i'm shocked <laughs> that's good yes um so yeah uh, we tend to find our own views convincing which is why we hold them so well, there's a reason why it's my view yes that's right and i've read it and i've not was not convinced i'm sorry um so yeah, I mean, I don't know what what else you want me to say about it other than, you know, there's a lot of manuscripts that don't have it. And so to me, it's a fundamentally different case than is the any mark. But he, let me just say this. If people do preach it as the word of God, I don't think it's led people astray. And I don't think it will. And uh, this is maybe where um, Jeff and I disagree a bit. Jeff is very concerned about the epistemological problem that my view has. And I'm far less concerned about it because I look through church history and I don't see a lot of, I mean, I see people abusing a text like Mark 16 in the mountains of Appalachia and people often use that as an argument to me to say, hey, you know, isn't it good that it's not original because of that? And I want to say, if we cut every text out of our Bible that somebody had abused along the way, then you wouldn't have a Bible left, right? Um, So that's not a good, that's not a good reason either to accept or reject a reading based on how people have used it. But uh, get back to the question of Peter. Don't you see? Don't you see how? Don't you see how? Modern historical text criticism ha- has resulted in the undermining of the authority of the Word of God. On you mean text criticism? Modern historical text criticism. It's a child of the Enlightenment. No, because I mean, it's been practiced so, so by that, Origen so that, and Jerome. It's so that, not fundamentally so that, different. It's so not that now, now you can sit here. You can sit here as a self-identified evangelical, right? And and challenge the authenticity of the woman. But you're challenging adultery. it too, Jeff. That's my point. Wait, Neither can of us I is a that. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Uh, you can sit here and and challenge this as a, as a self-identified evangelical, and it's it's it, it's a. Uh, 
this is not something that would have happened 150 years ago. Um, you would have. But you it would did. Have... I mean, you can go to Turretin and he discusses this. I mean, look, I've got a quote. I've got a quote here. If you want to, if people want to follow, up, they can look at the ETC blog. And you've got a you've got a pastor like Richard Baxter, right? Richard Baxter, who explicitly says on the woman caught in adultery. I'll just I'll just read it for for readers. It's in his paraphrase. He says that the last verse of the foregoing chapter and the 11 first verses of this chapter were not in diverse of the old books in the Greek and diverse in the most credible fathers either have them not or take them for apocryphal. And so do many Protestants besides Beza, so that it is uncertain to us whether it be any part of God's word. But we have enough besides of which we may be certain. Okay, so if somebody like Richard Baxter now, I don't think all his facts are quite right there, but if somebody like Richard Baxter could say, hey, I'm not sure. Wait a second. No, the point is isn't wasn't the point of that quotation at the end. He said, "But we may be certain." No, he says, I mean, "But I we have that, enough." No, he says, "But we have enough besides of which we may be certain." In other words, there's enough other parts of the scripture that don't have any doubt about them that we don't need to basically freak out I mean, about this one. I mean, I, I would I would want to look at the first of all. Richard Baxter has some strange ideas about a number that's of people. Things. Always tell me I, that's <laughs> but, fine. That's but, not my point. But anyways, and I and I would want to and I would want to look at the context of every everything that he said. Um, but I think if you were to do again a survey of the of the Protestant men, that passage would be affirmed and preached and taught as the as a text of Scripture. And, and if and if and, what and the you, did is always the defining thing, then I would say and now, yes. And now, but and now just, you, I, as a as a son of the Protestant Reformation, yes. are are denying the authenticity of that of that text. But why I is mean, it any worse and, than you affirming it? And Peter, what does this? What how? Do, what's the issue of this for the church? It, it it's it's uh, the erosion of the uh, of a sense of the authority of the Word of God. This is the practical, and, and what it's doing is it's either, it's doing one of two things. It's driving people away, and so we have the shell of mainline churches that have embraced this sort of Enlightenment-influenced scholarship, and yeah. it's, it's killed those churches, or, and or what it's, what, it's, what it's doing to a lot of evangelicals today is it's sending them to Rome, or sending them to Constantinople, where there is defense of traditional Christianity, and there's defense of the of, of the authority of the tradition as they hold it. I tend to, to, you know, my conviction is that those are wrong. But I think it's a what I'm saying is practically experientially, um, it's a wrong-headed approach. And and I don't say that just because uh, I'm I'm being pragmatic about it. I also think it's wrong because I believe that the pericope adulteri is scripture, not to be right. defended. Sure. And and you should. And so I, I would want you to be convinced by reading it and uh, by studying it, and that sure. you would hear the voice of the shepherd within it. Well, I, I mean, it may disappoint you to, to learn, but I have I do read it. <laughs> I mean, you know, see, this is the assumption. It's like once I say it's not scriptural, therefore I'm like it's evil and avoid it. No, uh, of that's I'm not what saying. I said. That, that's know, not what I said. Like, I mean, but that's, that's the impression given. Like the, story of like, the impression given is like if if I don't think it's original, and 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 again, the, the question is always presented as because it was there for the reformers, therefore the burden of proof is on you, Peter, to show. 
why it's otherwise. And I want to say the burden of proof is on people who are looking at the evidence. And when hundreds of manuscripts don't have it, that means there are hundreds of churches that we know of that weren't ever reading it in their Bible. And, and see, part of the difference that we, you and I may have is that, hold on, James, part of, the, part of the difference that you and I have is I don't think the Reformation church is the only church that's ever been or that's mattered. I think the church existed before that. I think God's people existed before that. And as I said I, in my I opening statement— I do, too. I mean, I yeah, do, too. That's great. But I, I, when yeah. I said in my opening statement, I don't want to cut the feet under those believers because of the woman caught in adultery. I, and what you're saying is if someone doesn't have that in their Bible— then what follows from that? Is there faith in vain? Of course not. I know you would say it's not. So what is the real practical danger of someone not having the woman caught in adultery in their Bible? If I'm wrong, now I think I'm right, but if it's, this is where we differ. I would say the problem for you, you're reading a text that's not scripture, but I don't think it's detrimental to your theology. You're saying I, I don't have it when I should, and it is detrimental to my theology, right? I think that's yes. the difference between us. Yeah. Yeah, it's only, it's, only de- it's only detrimental. It's only detrimental to you, but given that you're given that you're in a position where you have an influence on other people, it's also detrimental to the people under who who fall under the sway of your influence. If you say that it's not, no, that, we that will all stand before scripture. God. And I've we'll heard this. I've, 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 I've heard answer. this a little bit. You know, what I, what mm-hmm. seems to be um, uh, an evangelical reinterpretation of kept pure in all ages that, well, if there were churches in the past that didn't accept it, we have to, we have to give some credence to their views to respect their views on this. No, that's and not I, what I'm saying. Well, I'm not saying we have to respect I don't know their how view. you articulated it, but it, it reminds me of the earlier point you were talking about, you know, people, uh, churches that may have held to the so-called shorter ending of Mark, I would say they were wrong. They were in error. And or as I, as I was reading in uh, Eusebius's church history in, in book six and chapter 12 the other day about Serapion of Antioch writing to the, uh, the church at Rosas who had accepted the gospel of Peter and were reading it. And he had to, he had to write to them and say, no, gospel of Peter is docetic and you have to reject that. Right. So, but yes, see, that's not there an issue with the woman caught in adultery. That, yeah, yes, there that's were not an issue with the woman caught in adultery. It's not a question of whether it's heretical or not. On all of our views, the woman caught in adultery is good theology, is it not? Well, don't James you think it's good theology? It's not. Of course, but you the, think the it's good the theology, exam- but the, so do the I. Exa- the example, though, applies because it, the, 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 the Serapion of Antioch example, the Gospel of Peter, could be applied to if there was a church that. No, because I'm not the, saying. I, no, no, I'm not saying that if a church does something, therefore it's okay. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what mm-hmm. I am saying is, when you look at the history of the manuscripts, you realize with something like the Comma Johannium, most Christians reading First John in Greek have not read that text. So even on your view, if you think that the Comma Johannium is original, should be read by churches, you still have to recognize that there have been lots and lots of people in church history who have not done so. And my question to you is, do you think their faith was fundamentally flawed as a result? And I'm I, not the answer saying, is no. I'm, first of right. all, I mean, there were a lot of presuppositions in that. I mean, first of all, you, you presume that because uh, the extant manuscripts don't have it, that that meant that that meant that most Christians did have. I don't know. Well, most, I, I, I said I most Christians we they, have evidence for in Greek. That's what I said. But, no, most, and, most and, Christians we have evidence for in Greek did not read the Kama Yoanium. It but it doesn't matter if most you if can't it's actually, most or not. You can actually say that because you only you only have five manuscripts pre seven hundred. You you can say that 
the it's people who, you can say the people who had the extant oh. manuscripts did not right. have it within oh. theirs. But I'm even on, that that doesn't mean that their faith that doesn't mean that their faith in and of itself was flawed or that they weren't saved or converted. Bingo. Bingo. But it does mean it does mean that they were they suffered a deficiency that sure. they missed out on a benefit that they might have but received. They didn't, how uh, big was it? How big was the benefit? They had the Trinity uh, without that. Medieval verse. manuscripts didn't spring out of the ground from dragon's teeth. They're echoing earlier copies, so you can make the extrapolation. There's no reason to think the earlier copies of those echoes. Well, we've already established that, but yeah, I don't think Jeff accepts I mean, good on that. The same way when, when, a, when a voice goes <laughs> forth and the echo doesn't have the words, you, but it is, you that the voice didn't have the words. But it is a problem. We, we, we hear the voice from, from the old gonna, I don't think you're going to convince Jeff of that. It is a problem. It is a problem. I mean, go back to the, 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 the ending of the book of Revelation. You know, we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to add, we're not supposed to take away. And so there is a, there is an issue of the preservation of the word of God. Um, and, and, and so, yes, there is a problem if there's a part of the word of God that's an inspired word of God that is being omitted. Sure, but uh, let's put that in context. The word of How big of a problem is it? If somebody just throwing something into the Lord of God from the old Latin that was made up by an interpreter, there's something. There's a problem there, right. too. And that's, yeah, that's there, part there of what I'm saying. There would be a problem with addition as well. Right. And, there, and, there's, and there's a problem with omission. So this is what I'm trying to say. You can see the Common Johannium originate in Latin, and you can see how it's drifted into the Greek from the Latin. You can see the mechanism that caused it to be created in Latin, and you can see that it's nowhere except in Latin, and yet suddenly we're supposed to think, well, we're getting a little into that specific where I think you wanted to 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 wrap it up, but but you can see where, where the general picture is. I think the problem the real problem is that confessional ecclesiology even though it's often claimed we don't reconstruct the text, that's because you just pick your favorite reconstruction that was made in the 1500s and lock it in and say that's the text. Before the printing press, you couldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. You would look at the manuscripts and do textual criticism. Ecclesiastical bibliology is basically an excuse to not do the work. Saying, pretending that it's already been so done. So it's just, it's we just laziness. Know, we all know that it hasn't been done. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it. I, would, I, would, I, would I don't think it's a matter of laziness. Lazy it's a matter of, convic- based on it's a matter of convic- confessional conviction. Well, can I, can I jump in? I don't think it's. The statement is wrong because the text it was purely not kept that way in that sense. It's not pure in its exact form, the way that you're defining that as. It's simply Jeff, not would a you, statement. Would you say, Jeff? Would you would you say that your confessional position is partly driven by a fear of the alternative position, namely mine. That is a fear um, of where it leads. I don't think so. I mean, I don't you think, don't, it's, I don't, I don't you don't think it's, there's something to be afraid of in my view. I, I think that there's nothing wrong with, with, with seeing dangers and it's, it's right, right to be, it's right, right to be fearful of something that's dangerous. Right. So you're and afraid I of think, the dangers you see in my view. Well, I, yeah. I, Yes, and, yeah. but I, I also have a love for what I think is right and true, and sure. a zeal for what is do. right and uh, we all do. what is right and true. So right. just as just as I think, I mean, if I were to turn that around, I mean, and to say so, so far what I've heard is, confessional text advocates are lazy and fearful, 
that's what Jay said. And I'm, yeah. you know, uh, I, I'm being a little rhetorical. The method point. is lazy. But anyways, I don't know. I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I, that would be like me saying to you, well. James, you're just you're just lazy because you haven't read Garnet Howard Milne's discussion of kept pure in all ages, and you keep hey, using, you keep using an anachronistic term to describe it. And I could say, Peter, you're just fearful. You're fearful of the fact that uh, confessional the confessional text position is right, and if it's right, then you know you don't have a job sifting through manuscripts or whatever. That would that, be bad. So but see, the difference I'm is I'm is, not as fearful. I, what I'm saying is it's wrong for you. Yeah. It's wrong and it's unfair for you to say that because you don't agree with my position that it's you're you're ascribing malice to me. No, no. I'm can just I, lazy can I, can and fearful. No, can I Sorry. come back to this? Because I think you're, mis, you're misrepresenting. And I, it's my fault, actually, because I didn't make the point clear enough. It, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. The theological danger of my view from your position is bigger than the theological danger of your position from mine. And therefore, you have more to be afraid of theologically, okay, and rightly so if your position is right. You have more to be afraid In other words, let me, sorry, let me put it a different way. The dangers of my view from your perspective are more significant than the dangers that I see in your perspective, in your view from let me, mine. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that, do you right. think that the, the rise of modern historical text criticism and the fact that uh, many Protestants and now evangelicals are embracing it. Do you think this has led to, um, th th has, this, has this led to greater health and strength within Protestant and evangelical churches? No, well, no, because I don't think it's really that powerful of a thing. I guess that's part of the, the difference between you and I. I. I think in your view, text criticism is kind of the root that's the problem of a bad tree. And and I kind of feel like like my discipline isn't uh, doesn't doesn't have near that kind of power over people. I mean, frankly, most people have no idea about text criticism and it doesn't yeah, affect yeah, their but life. Peter, you're training, you're, you're training, <laughs> you're training pastors. Yeah. And this is what I'm trying who to gonna, explain. We're going to go out and preach Sunday by Sunday. And, are, and they, when they preach an expositional series through the gospel of Mark or and right. it, actually, oddly enough, you, we, we have some agreement on Mark because I know you don't believe it. You don't believe it's original to Mark, but you, right. you think it's inspired, right? You sort of like Metzger. Uh, sort of like Tregellis actually. Yeah. Okay. Like but anyway, but yeah, maybe maybe it would be John. So you're you are very influential. You are you, your views on this are influential, and it and it does have a generational legacy. Yeah. It has impact on people. And, and if I'm I, right, I, that's a good and, thing, right? And and we're if seeing. If my position is right, that's a good thing. Well, what I'm saying is what you're saying is the fruit is what bad. I'm saying is that if we observe and again, I'm not I'm not about this just pragmatically. I'm, I'm have a, a conviction about it right. out of, uh, you know, principle. Right. But I'm saying that pragmatically, the result of the introduction of the modern historical critical method, in this case, its application of text criticism has not been salubrious for 
Orthodox Christianity, and I'm Orthodox with a small O. Well, I, I wouldn't agree with the um, the premise of your argument. I, I don't think text criticism, even if it's in its modern form, is is a necessary part of the historical critical method. Um, certainly, the methods were refined during that period, but I don't see anything fundamentally different between what I do and what Origen or Jerome did. So it can't be. It can't be. I know it's. I know it's very popular oh. to do and very tempting oh. to pin it all on the Enlightenment, but I. I wish it were that simple, and it's just not that simple historically. James, let's way. get you... But your question. Let's your get... question. I don't think it's harmful. No, I think it's helpful to people to actually explain to them the evidence that we do have and not try to say, you know, ignore the evidence in that, a case I'm like 1 John 5, 7. No, but in 1 John 5, 7, from my view, you are ignoring the evidence. I'm not saying ignore it. Not Denying it, rejecting evidence. it, whatever, I mean, however you want to say it. I think it's much the more helpful to people I to say... Would not be answered by looking at the evidence, looking at the manuscripts. It right. would not be any different than if a person just said, when when asked, "What is the original text?" They wouldn't be saying, "I don't know. Let me go do some research and dig up some manuscripts." You know what the answer would be by simply by looking in the TR and saying, "Oh, here it is, the TR." In this reconstruction that I am holding in my hand, this printed reconstruction, but I'm not a reconstructionist. I but, just get all my they, answers, and they all just have to agree 100% with this reconstruction in my hand that we know was made in the 1500s, but I'm not a reconstructionist. I just follow... The TR, the TR, the TR, is, an, the TR is an eclectic text, but it's but it was a it was a providentially preserved text. So was Erasmus inspired? No, I, I didn't say Erasmus was inspired. But he was providentially guided, though, right? The evidence. Was, but he was providentially guided? God is providentially at work, yes. Definitely. Especially in a special way. In a special in a special way in the process, absolutely. Yeah. In a way that he's not in what you call modern textual criticism, right? I would so say no. I, I would say he's providentially involved. Yes, he's allowing it to happen. Day. He just picked the right ones. Even right, though you see the trail a, back to Latin. One question at a time, man. I can't. <laughs> okay. I can't hear you. You're both of you at the same time. All right. So let's go to our last question here. Um, and it's more of a comment. But I never got to ask one of James. But anyways, it's, it's, it's 1230 on the East here. Yeah. Okay. So this last comment, uh, which. Okay, it's 1230 here, too. Um, we've got one last comment, and uh, uh, somebody just wrote in on YouTube. Believe it or not, people are picking up on this second stream, and they're still watching it. Uh, this guy says, uh, Matthew Rosie says, this is the best show in town, gentlemen. Can we get a round two next month? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. Okay. I mean, now, can, I, can I jump in here real quick? Yeah, go ahead. And this to, to Jeff, one of the things I do love about the TR position, and, and frankly, at this point, maybe the only reason why I continue to engage it is is I love its zeal for theology, right? I think I think it's good and right to apply our theology to text criticism. Um, I happen to I happen to have think that theology is wrong, right? Um, but I just want to affirm Jeff and those on his side that I think the the concern for the Word of God um, and and the zeal for theology is is really good and healthy. I think it's misguided, but you know I. I yeah, okay, it's worth saying. Okay. All right, so here, here's our comment. I want to get your guys' take on this. Then we're going to give closing statements if you want to, or we can just wrap it up. I mean, it's... Okay, so let's see. 
Gurry did not have a Bible for 1,500 years, and Snap's Bible hasn't been printed until the 1980s, so neither has a recent providence, but they both seem to know what the Bible was in ancient times with fragmentary evidence. That's a comment, and I'd like to get your take on that, and then we can wrap it up from there. That's, I think that's a, there's a real, well, James, you should answer this, but let me, can I do it really quickly, and then I'll, your answer will probably be better. I think to say that, that I haven't had a Bible for 1,500 years, is to say that one change in a Bible suddenly makes it a fundamentally different book. And that's not the case. The scriptures are the scriptures in their form, even when there's variance between them, right? So a manuscript like Vaticanus is not perfect in my view, but it is still a copy of the scriptures. It is the Bible, yes? And it is the Bible, and so is my copy of the Nestle Alon, which I think is still overall better than Vaticanus. So there's a massive assumption there that I think actually is quite unhelpful, and that's what I mean about I don't want to take the Bible away from people before us because of some variance. So anyways, that's my take. James, do you have a take on that? Um, just just a, a little, um, when we say uh, there's never been a Bible like yours, um, you act like that wasn't normal. Right. Uh, but uh, look back at the manuscripts. Were any of them ever two exactly the same? Um, nope. Don't see one yet. There's some in F35 that are pretty close. <laughs> but um, but the, the, this desire for uniformity and an exact form, this is a phenomenon that's come up since the printing press was created. Uh, if, if you were to rewind back to the Middle Ages... Uh, nobody would be surprised by having a Bible that isn't exactly like every other Bible, and nobody mm, would say. I'm not sure that, about that. That's right. Uh, that's that's why that's why they would go. Um, that's why they would go and look at an authoritative uh, copy, a, an authoritative ectype, and check it to make sure they were concerned about the accuracy. Yes, there were there were there were inaccuracies that developed through scribal errors and sometimes intentional but errors. No, but that doesn't no mean they weren't copies. concerned. That doesn't mean they weren't concerned about right. accuracy. Well, that's not, I don't I'm, think I'm, what James said. That, I'm not saying they weren't concerned. I'm saying that yeah. in in, in terms said. of no, actually he actually they said they hands, weren't concerned. There were no two that were exactly alike. And right. so and, simply and, by saying and, the Bible's not like the one that came before it, isn't necessarily a bad thing because they did exactly what you're saying they can check with older copies in other words do tech do some textual criticism and do reconstruction work the the kind of thing that you say shouldn't be done and refuse to do i think there's an assumption this would be interesting to know i think there's an assumption here that th there's some really significant assumptions about certainty in these discussions and i had two tr guys come to visit my text criticism class to to um <laughs> explain their view to my students, and the one who's presenting said 1% uncertainty is 100% uncertainty. And I'd be interested to know if Jeff agrees with that statement or if he would disagree with it or phrase it differently somehow. Yeah, I, I, I listened to that uh, Taylor's lecture. Yeah. And, I mean, I, 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 I agree with him, absolutely. Right. Right. And, and and this is a, this could be a lot longer. I thought we this might come up tonight actually a lot earlier about the which TR uh, question, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think we have to be apologetic uh, about seeking absolute certainty. That's not it's not bad to want to have to want to have certainty about the Word of God. Yeah, but it's not a question. And, and to be it. and to be and to be confident within it. Right. Um, 
so anyways, so yeah. But you're but you're you've made a distinction there, Jeff, between seeking absolute certainty and having it. You think you have it, correct? You're not actually seeking. I, I believe I believe it's there in the family of the of the printed TR manuscripts. So if is there is there a point one percent uncertainty in the TR edition? That, that's not a, that's not uncertainty. I said it's there in the printed TR manuscripts. And with regard to something like the Pericope Adulteri, yes, I'm certain that's that's part of the Word of God. What yes. if? But there might be 0.1% where you're not certain about the text, correct? No, I, I didn't say it. I, oh, I said that it, it's, in, I'm certain that it's there yeah. within the family of the of the. But you're not certain what it is. Well, um, I think it has to be handled yeah. on a case-by-case basis. But, yeah. you're, but you're, there are places where you're not certain where it is. I, I think it has to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. Well, but in theory, you're, there may be places where you are not certain, and that would be okay with your position. Well, no, well, no it's there. It's there. there there's, no, no. No, it's, there's no uncertainty about about the the inspired word of God. The immediately inspired word of God is there, and it's been preserved. Um, so, James, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, when you, when you refer to the, the printed TR and the, the various printed compilations, there there is some some wiggle room there. It seems. I, mean, I mentioned one of them a while ago. Romans twelve eleven. Stephanus has time, and some of the others have. Serving the Lord instead of serving the time. Um, in your approach, um, do you consider there to be potential to pick readings within that, within within the limits of of those editions? You know, those those little degrees of variation. Mm-hmm. Do you think that in in within that variation that there's room to do research work into manuscripts and say, okay, we have Complutensian polycarp, poly, 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 uh, uh says, says this. Uh, Erasmus has this conjectural emendation in James two four. Uh, Beza puts a conjectural emendation over here. Erasmus throws something into Acts nine six, and we've got all these printing errors. When we start to look into them in the text of Revelation and Revelate in, in Erasmus's text, some of which got sorted out and some of which did not. Um, would your approach allow? Um, yeah, I, I did a I did a I did a podcast, and if you haven't listened to it, called "Responding to the Witch Tr Objection," and I and I laid down some principles for de- dealing with minor variations in the printed tr, and um, and I, and I responded to actually uh, three passages that I use as example passages. So I laid out some basic principles that starts with comparing the printed editions of the TR and moves on to comparing um, vernacular translations as well. So at, at any rate, I don't think that there's anything that we have to be apologetic about with regard to saying that we want certainty with regard to the word of God. And I, and I, I mean, James, you're a pastor. I don't know what the per, what the perception of are the of the people within your own congregation, but I but I think the people of God uh, understand that God's word has been immediately inspired and it's been preserved, and they 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 want don't want your doubts about the Bible. They want confidence in the Bible, and um, again, I, I think this is a fundamental pastoral problem. Um, that's been introduced into the church by modern text criticism and by the reconstruction method. Okay. And it's part of the reason why I don't think it's helpful in the end uh, for the people of God. 
Okay, but could you give me just a couple of samples of readings that you would consider, especially readings that have a different meaning than what's in the King James? Are there Can any? I? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would at this point in the discussion, I would refer you to the podcast, and I, I did a, a, a blog article about it also. And um, what's it called? So that I can just Google it. Um, if you if you Google um, if you go to if you go to jeffriddle.net and you put in which tr, you sh the 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 article should come up, and then there's a, a link to the podcast. Yeah. Okay, so I've got one point of clarification from uh, John Jeffrey. He wants to know from Peter what that uh, reference was for the R Richard Baxter quote on the PA. Do you know what that is by chance? Yeah. If you go to the ETC blog and search in the blog search field for Richard Baxter, you'll find it in, along with uh, a number of other lengthy quotes from, from Baxter. Baxter is quite interesting. I mean, he's, he seems quite comfortable with uncertainty at various points and text-critical text uncertainty. Um, so does uh, James Usher, who you can also search for on the blog. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I just, you know, I want to give people confidence too, but I don't want to give people false confidence in, in texts like First John 5 7, you know? So. Okay. That's, that's, that's good. Just, hey, um, I do want to ask you real quick um, how do you expect the CBGM to ha impact the NA29, NA30, any upcoming additions? in that realm uh you, you got to be more specific because you know is it going to affect the text yes that's what it's designed to do to improve the text uh but i can't you know i can't look into the future and say where they're going to change the text okay so well, to, sorry i just had to wait <laughs> that's good enough for me okay well um let me ask you guys do you want to do three minute closing statements or just wrap it up Whatever you guys want to do is fine. I, I, I prepared one, so... Okay. Go for it, James. All right, so we had Jeff first, and then Peter, and then James last, if you want to do it that way. So, Jeff, we'll turn it over to you. Okay. So, thank you guys for the discussion. I appreciate it and enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for uh, even the questions and the challenges. It's helpful for me. I always tell people I feel like I'm a student of these things, I'm still learning and I'm gaining uh, from information. I've appreciated what I've learned from you guys tonight. So thank you. Uh, my interest in the text of scripture came about in a very practical way. As a pastor, week in and week out, I had to uh, study a passage to preach expositionally through books of the Bible. And as I would study each week, uh, I had to read the text, and I had to examine it, and I had to determine, you know, what is the Word of God? How can I interpret this? How can I, how can I preach this? And also as a pastor, I was meeting with people pastorally, giving them counsel from God's Word. And in those sorts of circumstances, I had to ask, you know, does the Lord's Prayer end with a doxology or not? Uh, when I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark, can I preach the traditional ending of Mark as the Word of God? Would this Gospel even make sense if there were no resurrection appearances? 
Can I preach the pericope adulteri? Do I uphold 1 Timothy 3.16, that God was manifest in the flesh? Uh, can I affirm uh, the three heavenly witnesses? A verse that came to mean a lot to me uh, was 1 Corinthians 1.8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? We're living in unsettled times. Evangelicals are falling apart. Many are dropping out. Others are seeking alternatives where authority and tradition are not overturned, but respected and embraced. In the end, I'd rather have the Bible of John Calvin, John Owen, Francis Turretin, and R.L. Dabney than the Bible of John Piper, Kurt Aland, and Bruce Metzger. So friends, I find the confessional text position to be winsome, to be satisfying, and to be true. And so uh, I would encourage those who are listening to carefully consider these things, carefully consider what you have heard, and carefully consider uh, what is the word of God, and listen for the voice of the shepherd in your reading of the scriptures. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Hey, thanks again for coming on, Peter. We're going to turn it over to you for your closing statement. You've got three minutes whenever you're ready. Sure. Uh, so uh, I think the question is, what should we do with the evidence, time, and, and skill the Lord has given us? And to the best of our abilities, we should use that time, evidence, and skills to understand his word, to follow it, and obey it and to help others do the same. And uh, Dr. Rill said he'd, he'd rather have the Bible of Owen, etc., rather than Curtilon and John Piper. I'd rather have the, the Bible of the Apostles. And then the debate that we've had here tonight is really a question of how do we identify the Bible of the Apostles? And I would assert that it's fundamentally not a question that can be avoided, that you will have to make a decision whether you like to or not, and while the, the confessional position may make you feel like you haven't had to make a decision, it's really simply letting somebody else make the decision for you or letting some other decision further up the line decide this question for you. For myself, I would rather do what people like Erasmus and Jerome have done before me and examine the evidence of the manuscripts and to the best of my ability with the time and evidence God has given me and discern what the Word of God is as the apostles wrote it. All right, thank you, and let's uh, let me get James up here, and we'll turn it over to James. All right, you've got it, James. Three minutes whenever you're ready. Ready. In closing, I'd like to briefly consider three different approaches to the role of tradition in the compilation of the text of the New Testament. A one view is to look at how much agreement there is along all transmission lines and conclude. Textual variants don't matter. Everyone agrees. You've got the basics of the gospel. If you use the TR, the Textus Receptus, so let's use that for the sake of stability. Another approach is to focus on the disagreements, and a person might say, this is very complicated. We just can't tell what the original readings are. The safest course of action is to just go on using what the church has traditionally used. Now, if one defines the church in terms of what has emerged from the Reformation, 
That approach will provoke the adoption of the Textus Receptus. If one defines the church in a wider sense, the traditional Greek text is the Byzantine text. Ecclesiastical authority is on its side. But both of those approaches are basically appeals to authority, authority in the form of tradition. And an appeal to authority is not the same as an appeal to evidence. A reading is authoritative because it is original, not simply because it is thought to be original. Except for scribal blunders, practically all major readings were thought to be original by somebody. That's why they're in the manuscripts. It takes more than being, being accepted by somebody to vindicate a reading. When dogmatic statements are used instead of arguments from evidence, it's like saying, we've been using Mumpsimus, so Mumpsimus is what should be read. They said so in the 1600s. But readings do not become authoritative by being used. An original reading is authoritative at the point of its inspired creation. And scribal corruptions are never authoritative because they're not inspired, no matter how many people like them. There is also a third view in which someone says, if ecclesiastical usage is what endows a reading with authority, then all readings are valid because they all have at least a little bit of ecclesiastical usage in their favor. And this provokes a temptation to clutter the margins with a multitude of textual variants. Not only does this render the text more unstable than ever, I think this is a, getting to be a danger in, in some, some editions, it, because it invites readers to pick and choose on their own, but uh, it's the exact opposite of what textual critics are supposed to do, which is make decisions about textual contests. However, I suggest that tradition does have a valid role in certain cases. If two competing textual variants both have strong external support, which rules out the common Johannium, and they convey two different messages, and neither one is shown by internal... Sorry. Uh -oh. Neither one is shown by internal considerations to, not, to be not original, and one of both readings say something that's not confirmed in other passages, that's a situation that merits a footnote. But which reading goes into the text and which one goes into the margin? Well, after those qualifications are met, that's an important point, uh, there's something to be said for the principle that possession is nine-tenths of the law. If one reading consistently dominates the other in terms of widespread and long-standing use, then instead of having a relatively brief council of bishops to break the tie, we have a very long council of use. This approach might not resolve every case, but it will help keep textual instability to a minimum without giving tradition the right to veto the text, the original text. Thank you. All right. Well, I've got to say, guys, this has been a lot of fun um, having this conversation. I think it's it's one that is much needed. It's very beneficial. Um, and I think that you can tell that by the number of people who would agree that it is a conversation that needs to be had. And uh, we, I, you know what? You guys, in my opinion, have represented your positions as well as anybody could. Uh, I, you all individually know a lot more about this than I do, so I'm I'm really glad uh, to have you guys come on tonight. I really appreciate each one of you for doing that. And uh, Peter, you've got a you've got a newborn at home. I know what that's like. I've got twins who are three years old, both of them right now, and uh, it, it's tough with newborns to find find time to sleep. And it's what one o'clock your time now. Uh, it's only eleven for me. Okay, so eleven for you. But you guys in, have it much worse. 
So, Jeff and James, guys, also, I really appreciate you guys coming on. At the end of the day, um, I don't know what, what, what the final word to leave you guys with is. At the end of the day, the Word of God is 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 so important in your life. I, I don't know how to stress the importance of the Word of God in your life and having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that's probably the best that I can do right now. I'm, I'm, I've been awake for 20 hours, and i got to get up in four hours. So... Um, I think that's going to be a wrap. So, any final words from any of you to cap it off for us? Thank you, man. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks again. Longing for the pure milk of the word. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, well, that's going to be it. I'm going to cut to the closing scene, and we will have a wrap here. So, thanks again, guys. Have a good night. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night, good night guys. Well... That is, that's that. I really, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I think that this is, this is something that um, hopefully is a conversation to, to consider, to look at, to go back and listen to and to re-listen to. And uh, I, you just don't see um, this kind of a conversation happening too often where it's just hammered out the way that it was tonight. And I, I appreciate these guys for being so generous and, and being so honest at the same time on on the differences between their, their positions. But anyways, guys, this Saturday we're doing a debate. I'm doing a debate with Lewis Dizon. He is a Roman Catholic apologist um, on the doctrine of justification. And uh, then uh, we're going to do another debate in a couple of weeks uh, with Randy Krakowski out of New York. And we're going to be talking about uh, the origin of morality. Uh, he He's... Uh, got a website which is lineforjesus.org. He's a self-proclaimed atheist agnostic, so a lot, a lot of good conversations to be had that are that are needed as well. So, with that said, God bless and uh, have a good night. <laughs>